You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Hey, West Side. Uh, welcome to part three of our Scandal of the Cross. It's great to be with everybody today. I know we also have a live service uh, at the park going on, and they're getting the exact same lesson that we're all getting today online. Are any of you out there competitive? I know that I am very competitive. And today we're going to talk about the cross. And one of the stories of the cross is the crowd and how they influenced the result of Pontius Pilate uh, sending Jesus to be crucified. And the crowd can be a problem. I know for me, I'm competitive. And competitiveness really relates to wanting to win competitions or look good in front of people. And this week on Monday, I was in a competition with my 11-year-old son. We were playing basketball, which we often do. And he was beating me. I think the score was 11 to 3. And we play by twos and threes. If you hit a three, you get three. And so everything else is two. And I am a foot taller than him, but he was up on me quite a bit, and I thought I need to not let him get any further ahead of me. So I jumped as high as I could, which was not that high, to block one of his layups. Didn't block it. But when I came down, I landed on his foot. And if you've played basketball, you know if you land on someone else's foot, it's very dangerous. And my foot rolled under, and man, did that hurt. Um... I'm, I'm better. It's only been a couple of days, but I've been healing quickly. But I thought I'd be out of it for several weeks. And I thought God was trying to teach me the lesson again that you do not have to win to have fulfillment in life. And certainly against my 11-year-old, I don't have to win. But today's lesson about the crowd and its impact in the way we think, uh, we're going to get back to really how competition plays into that. But I want to read beginning today, and and this will, again, constitute not only our lesson, but our communion message as well. So we're going to turn and we're going to read from the book of Matthew, the passage from chapter 27, starting in verse 11. We read there, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, He gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We'll continue on. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, They had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. 
Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It's a tragic story. It's also the story of great victory because Jesus did not cater to the crowd like Pilate did. And like all those in the crowd catered to the leaders at that time. You know, as we study the history of this, we learn that the elders, uh, which are the leaders of those people, of the Jewish people, and the chief priests, they were very concerned about their position and their status in that society. And we had read, if you'd read John chapter 11, we read in there where Caiaphas, the high priest, even says it's better if one man dies for the nation than that the whole nation perish. And what he was referring to was the Roman Empire was getting uh, short-minded and short-tempered with the Jewish nation. And there was great concern that their place, their political roles, their position, um, the uh, positions of authority that the leaders themselves had, as well as the safety that they felt at that time, could be jeopardized because of, because of really political uprisings and differences between how to run a country, being the chosen people of God. There was a lot of zealous uh, fire amongst the Jews to uh, push back against Roman rule. And the Roman Empire was very adept at crushing those kinds of rebellions. And so they feared their position might be uh, affected. And so they thought, we can show the Roman Empire that we, in fact, uh, are loyal by standing up and saying, yes, anyone who claims to be a king, and Jesus had claimed to be a king. He claimed to be, in fact, the king. And so by turning him over and really playing the role of politician, they said, hey, that will show Rome that we're on their side. And so in handing Jesus over to Pilate and persuading the crowd to yell for him to be crucified and for Barabbas to be freed, they were really protecting their position. You know, I think the crowd concept is one we all have to consider. Are you in the crowd? You know, I think in some ways, all of us can say we, we very well are in the crowd. We, we might have been uh, actually there had we lived at that time. And I know for me, yes, I, I, I can say clearly, I'm sure I would have uh, catered to the crowd. I'm sure I would have fallen into what they do. And sadly, we learn that the crowd, it gets us to do things we really don't believe in. And it can make us believe in things that, in fact, are not true. Uh, crowds can get us to become someone we are not. You think about the Jewish people there. They, they did believe in God. They knew God. And yet, and yet the, their elders and the chief priests convinced these followers of the Old Testament to literally call for the crucifixion of God himself. You know, crowds can make us lose our minds. 
And I want to share a little bit. The reality of this is so true. Um, you know, in our world today, there's so many uh, unjust, hurtful, and oppressive circumstances that we live under. There's many myths that exist, and the crowd promotes these myths. Uh, this past year, certainly, uh, so many of us have had our eyes open to the continuing oppression of minorities in our culture, and just seeing it, and feeling it, and recognizing it. And, you know, it's it's really um, a, a writer, Dr. Hughes, wrote a book called the, the Five Myths Americans Live By, but the one myth he missed was the myth that he later wrote an entire book about. And that's the myth of white supremacy, which has risen up through centuries of capitalism and, of course, through the slave trade and um, the results uh, of segregation and all these things that have happened in our culture certainly have created a myth of white supremacy. And I'm here as a, a white preacher to tell you it's a myth, but it's one a lot of people believe. And I, I can just tell you point blank, uh, in my own life, I've grown up thinking things are going to work out for me. Things are going to be uh, taken care of. I, uh, when I get pulled over by the police, I confess I am, I'm not afraid. I, I think I'm going to get out of it. And I, and I have many times. But that's not the same narrative and story that my, my brothers, my, my African-American brothers and sisters uh, really experience. There, there's clear differences there. And there's a, a myth that has permeated our society. You know, interestingly, preparing for this lesson, I was looking for a picture of Jesus in the crowd, uh, like uh, some of the theatrical adaptations. You know, as I looked through Google of these pictures, I couldn't find any with Jesus not having really light-colored skin. And in my history studies, I realized without question, Jesus was from the Middle East. Uh, he's going to have much darker skin than I have. He's he's not going to look the way our theatrical representations often show him to be. But I couldn't find any. So I, I, if we doubt that the crowd mentality has affected our thinking, then we're deceived. It has. Um, we need to be aware of that as Christians. Uh, I think about how uh, sad and how foolish and how insane our culture gets when the crowd mentality begins to affect how you think. Uh, I want to give just my heart goes out uh, to the victims and the family victims of the recent shooting in Georgia and to our Asian American uh, brothers and sisters. My heart goes out the insanity of of judgment and the insanity of crowd thinking and, and, and unfounded fears and stereotyping. It's wrong. It's not the way it's it's not humanity's correct way. It's not God's correct way. And yet crowd thinking can get us to be stuck in some really foolish things. You know, today, uh, as I'm filming this, I just got back from uh, being out on campus with our campus minister at UCLA, uh, Justin Shump. And we were out having some time together, and our goal was to meet some new people. And we did, in fact, meet some great people, a uh, fellow athlete, of I know, uh, knows one of our athletes on the track team there. We met a young man and demonstrated some very open-heartedness to learning the gospel and, and connecting more with us. Uh, it was exciting to be out there. But as I was out there talking to Justin, I told him, you know, I remember years ago when I, I was the primary campus minister in my old church. And even in my late 30s with a family overseeing a church and the campus ministry, it was still at times very difficult to want to 
uh, approach someone and talk to them about Jesus. I was afraid of what they think. I remember sometimes I'd show up at campus and I would sit in my car for like 10 minutes fearing, oh, what if, what if people don't like what I have to say? What if I don't meet anybody interested? And, and of course I would talk myself through and go, Steve, you're, I'm a grown man with kids the same age as these college students that I'm helping and trying to help. And yet this fear would penetrate me. And I think we all relate to that because of the crowd mentality. Because we can so easily give in to crowd thinking. And of course, if we care more about what the crowd thinks, then we are not going to care about what God thinks. And so there's a lesson we need to learn. You know, we, we fought those temptations many, many times in the old days in the campus ministry. And I, I do want to urge all of us to fight the temptation to cater to the crowd. The cross lesson is don't cater to the crowd. Uh, the crowd is not always wrong. In fact, sometimes Jesus had their thinking on the right path. And sometimes we can uh, be thinking correctly as a crowd. But we have to be measured. We have to be measured. And our foundation ultimately has to be bigger than what the group thinks. We have to seek truth. Every one of us has to seek truth, not approval of people. And I know the competitive nature that uh, arises in me often comes from this desire to please people. And I think many of us can relate to this. Um, uh, the fears that arise in me to not stand for what I really believe come from wanting or being concerned about what people will think of me. How about you today? Do you cater to the crowd or are you grounded in something deeper? I want to read the scripture, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 kind of sums up the motive of all our achieving. It says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That our toil, our accomplishment, our achievement, they spring from us wanting to have or have more than our fellow man. From our comparison of how do we match up? And the wisdom writer here, Solomon, says quite plainly, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's emptiness. And so I strive for this competitive spirit. I want to win. Vince Lombardi said, and I might add falsely, he said, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And though I understand and I can chuckle with his desire to be a great coach and win Super Bowls, it's not the only thing. It's also not everything. What counts is our created purpose. What counts ultimately is our love for God versus our love for this world. Another verse to consider with this concept of the crowd is in verse 4 of James 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, I don't think God intended here that we can't enjoy his good creation. I don't think that means that we don't get to enjoy life. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, yes, you can enjoy the creation that God put here for us. 
But he's talking collectively. Are we ultimately a friend of the world and its standards and its viewpoints and its sense of stratification of what humanity ought to be? The classism, the racism, the sexism that exists. Are we a friend of the world or are we a friend of God? We read in the scriptures that the world and its desires pass away, but the one who lives for God will live forever. And Jesus at the cross, he upends the thinking of the crowd. You know, as we had read, he didn't defend himself when when Pilate asked him, well, they're accusing you of all these things. Why don't you defend yourself? And he remained silent, which amazed Pilate because everyone defends himself in the eyes of the crowd. Everyone wants to look good in the eyes of the crowd. Recently, I um, was on a call with the leadership team of the whole LA church as one of the region leaders in LA. Uh, I represent, of course, our West Side Church. And on that call, there was a discussion and one of, one of the campus ministers came on and discussed an upcoming event. And I didn't know he was coming on. And they were discussing that event and a number of other events in the ministry and how we needed to work through how to plan them better and be more efficient. But I remember just feeling so self-conscious when he was on. They're like, wow, is he on here to make me look bad? And, you know, the other region leader had brought him on. I had a talk with him about it. Um, and he said, I had no intention whatsoever to bring him on for the sake of uh, making you look bad. I did want us to do better as an overall church, but it, I didn't want it to reflect at all on you. And I thought about it. I was really, you know, the only one that took it that self-consciously because I'm thinking about how I look in the eyes of my peers. And I think we can all do that just a little too much. Um, I don't think it's wrong to want to be uh, respected, but I think we can't cater to the crowd for the sake of just having respect. We must seek truth. We must seek God's honor. We must seek righteousness. We must seek humility. And we must seek the cross. And the message of the cross is not to defend ourselves so we look good in the eyes of people. And I think so often our evangelistic zeal as, as a whole movement, Western Christianity, is beginning to die on the vine. And I think it's because we care too much about what people think. And we won't say the hard things. You know, God is a God of truth and a God of grace. And we got to take a firm stand on many, many, many convictions of moral purity. And yet, God's a God of also love and inclusion. And we got to take a stand on including and loving. And you have to balance the two. We must live with an attention of this truth and this grace. And we cannot be concerned about what we look like. You know, God intends for every one of us to connect to him and know him and fulfill an incredible mission. That is why Jesus went to the cross. That is why he didn't defend himself. Because if we were accused of an assortment of sinful actions, we really wouldn't have a leg to stand on. And I often, when I study the Bible with, with people I'm training to become Christians, I tell him, listen, when Jesus doesn't respond, doesn't defend himself, it's because he's standing in for you. He's standing in for me, and, and I can't defend myself before God. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And I need someone to come and save me from who I am left to myself. And that's what Jesus did. He goes to the cross. He doesn't cater to the crowd, although Pilate does. 
And all the crowd gives in, and it causes this result that Jesus goes to the cross, a brutal, brutal death for you and for me. And as we close out today, I want us to consider the answer. Don't cater to the crowd. Rather, consider your creator. Don't cater to the crowd in your life, but consider your creator and the intended purpose for your creation. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says that simply, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and you find no pleasure in them. And it ends and it says, the duty of man is to fear God and and obey his commands. Because God has an eternal destiny for us if we'll consider his created intent for each of our lives. Sadly, oftentimes we let the crowd mentality take us down the wrong road. I want to urge us as a church to be bold. We need to be bold. Truth seekers, seeking truth, not catering to the crowd, but considering our creator, aware that Jesus is our ultimate judge and he has given us the hope, the power to change, and the example of humility and not worrying about what all people think of us, but instead instead what God intended us to each become. Our mission is sure. It's clear. Take care of the gifts God's given you and give them back to him to bring him glory. And I want to challenge the West Side Church. As I was on campus, uh, I realized it's, it's not a time to be timid. We can't worry about what people think of us. There's a message of love, grace, and truth that must be shared. I want to call on us to be bold. I want to call on us to open our mouths and talk to some people and share. We've, we've all been locked down for a year. It's time to be bold and not be concerned about what people think of us. I want to challenge us to be truth seekers. I know many of us have been studying the Bible about a lot of complex theological issues, and that's a good thing. I'm grateful for our young people. I'm grateful for all of us studying to understand what does it look like to be a church that that preaches truth and grace, that's inclusive of all, and yet doesn't compromise God's firm convictions on morality. Church, we have a lot of work to do. We can't cater to the crowd. We need to consider our creator. At this time, as we thank God for sending his son, let's remember these things. Let's pray for communion. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this privilege to be here. As we think about Jesus standing before the crowd, and as we see the leaders of the Jews stirring up the crowd to choose Barabbas instead of Jesus, Father, it's, it's shocking. It is a scandal. It's shocking to see. And yet, God, uh, I know I, I would be in that crowd. I would be influenced, and I'm sorry for that. Father, I pray each of us right now can recognize this incredible gift and privilege and hope that Jesus provides through going to the cross. And Father, I pray for boldness. I pray for a mind that's clear and ready to seek truth in all cases and to stand up for truth, uh, not catering to popular opinion. Father, we love you. I thank you for Jesus giving his body and shedding his blood for me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.